Psalm 73, kind of walking through some of the different psalms throughout the summer. And here we are, made it to Psalm 73. It says this, it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches. Then he comes in verse 13. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery, slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. But nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, you hold my right hand. You, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You uh, put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's in Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus, that we see this brilliant illustration of how envy can cause devastation to our own lives. If you're not familiar with Amadeus, it centers around a man by the name of Antonio Salieri, and Salieri is an interesting character, because in many ways we feel his pain, we, we understand his frustration, but he's the antagonist of the play. At the beginning of the play, it opens up with Salieri kind of making this promise to his God or, or asking God to bless him in return if he gives his life to him. So he says, God, would you allow me to be the best composer in this entire world? Allow my fame to be able to spread across the earth. And if you allow that, God, then I will give you my purity. I will give you uh, all the days of my life. I will serve other people. And he does that for a while, but the problem with the play is when Amadeus Mozart shows up. Amadeus is confusing to Salieri. It, it messes up his, his worldview. 
Because here Mozart is this this brilliant composer, one who has this divine gift, the, the best composer Salieri has ever seen. God would give this man this gift doesn't make sense to Salieri because Mozart's an arrogant, drunk, vulgar man who doesn't treat women right. In fact, all he does is sleep with a whole bunch of them. And this doesn't make sense, again, to Salieri why God would bless this vulgar man. He doesn't think he deserves this gift. After all, he's the one who's serving God. He's the one who gave his life and saying, here, here, God, take my life and use it. And yet God would choose to bless Mozart instead of him. As the play continues, you see the envy and the anger begin to rise up in Salieri's soul. He's upset. It gets even worse when God allows the the woman that Salieri was kind of in love with. He allows Mozart to have this woman, even though Mozart is already a married man. And he doesn't get it. It seems so backwards to him. Why would God allow this man to be blessed? Because he's so vulgar and sinful, but yet here he is, the one who has nothing. And yet he's given everything to his God. So in this moment of rage, he he turns and he shakes his fist and he says, we are now enemies, God. You and I are no longer friends. And in those words, we we feel his pain. And we understand his frustration. Because his envy has been our envy at times. But specifically when you're suffering, Right? You look out the window and you see everybody else prospering and it, it just makes you angry inside. And then on top of that, if those people who are prospering are, are not serving the Lord like you are, you've begun to become even more frustrated. It's confusing. Why would God bless those people and not yourself? And yet in the psalm, we, the, the psalm picks up this frustration. Because the psalmist is feeling it himself. He's he's looking out and and he's seeing all the wicked prosper and yet the righteous he's seen is suffering and he's saying, God, this is backwards. And the question he's dealing with this morning is what are we to do when the scales of blessing are reversed? How do we handle that envy? How do we handle that frustration? How do we handle seeing others prosper when we're suffering? See, the psalmist, it begins by telling us who wrote it, a man by the name of Asaph. And Asaph was a man who was, he was kind of the, a Levite who was in charge of King David's kind of courthood in which he was in charge of the musicians. And he's a very vulnerable man, as we see in the text. We see his frustration, we see his anger, we see him almost slipping, he says, almost giving up his faith. But the great things about the psalms is that that Asaph leaves a transformed man. He enters the psalm with frustration and anger and confusion, but yet he leaves with a different worldview, a different perspective, because he got his eyes back on his God. And that's why I love the psalms, right? Because they put words to what we feel. They reveal our frustration and our hurt sometimes, but, but the psalms, they, they take us through our trials and tribulations and And they do leave us changed afterwards. They show us a new perspective, a different perspective we should have had. And and they correct our distorted view. And it corrects it back with a biblical kind of view of how we should view the the world. And we see it so clearly. 
Because in this psalm, we see Asaph's kind of struggle. We see his anger. We see here he is struggling. Again, he tells us he, he almost came to the point in which he slipped. He, he almost came to the point in which he threw his faith away. Why did he get there? Because he was angry with his God. He was angry at Yahweh for what Yahweh was doing. In fact, look again what it says in verses 1 through 3. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's kind of the bookends of what we see in the Psalms. Comes with a good perspective at the beginning and good perspective at the end. But in the middle, his perspective is kind of off. Verse 2, this is where we see it. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See what he's saying there? He almost gave it all up. And, and he sees his problem is the prosperity of the wicked. But it's not just the prosperity of the wicked, but it's the prosperity of the wicked when the righteous are the ones who are suffering. Prosperity of the wicked, when they got everything going on great in their lives, but yet it's the righteous who are struggling and being persecuted and suffering in this life. And Asaph says, I, I don't get it. Well, why would God allow this to take place? Here we are, are the ones who are loving God, and yet this is how God treats his own children, but yet he allows the wicked to prosper. It didn't make sense to him. So in verse 5, listen to how he describes the wicked. He says, they are not in troubles as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He says, they got it good. He goes on to say that they, they are the ones who, who feel no pain in this life. They are the ones who live this long life. They are the ones who, who fill their bellies with food. They have an abundance of prosperity, but at the same time, their hearts are full of folly. And again, this frustrates Asaph. Because he's seen the wicked be full, but yet he, he is still hungry. He, he's seen the wicked win battles, but yet here he is struggling and suffering. Remember, he's with King David. He understands King David's story of hiding in caves. And he's saying, why is this all taking place? And then verse 9, he says, not only is the problem with the arrogant succeeding in this life, or the wicked succeeding, but it's the wicked's arrogance when they are succeeding, it's almost like they boast that they don't need God. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says that they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. It's almost like the more they succeed, the more they don't think they need God in their lives. And they boast about it. We've seen this throughout history. Dionysus the, the Younger was this man who was a tyrant of Sicily, a man who, who plundered the, the, uh, the, the Syracuse temple. And as he takes his plunder, he gets back on his ship and he sets sails to home and he has this great safe voyage. And when he returns, he says, do you not see now that the gods love and favor those who do sacrilegious stuff? He says they favor those who commit sacrilege. It's his way of looking to believers and saying, why are you believing in God when, when look at all I have accomplished without him? And in this sense, this is what Asaph is struggling with. The wicked, they boast. And Asaph wonders why God doesn't just take them down a couple notches. 
Why is he allowing the arrogant to strut their stuff in front of believers when the believers are the ones who are serving the Almighty God? And we understand his struggle. We've all been there. There's so many times in life in which we look out and we see people succeed that we don't think deserve it. That's when envy so easily creeps into our lives. And here's the problem with envy, though. Envy creates the next emotion that that it it moves to anger so quickly. So, So when we become envious, what happens? We get angry at the people who are prospering, and we get angry at God. And we see Asaph's anger against his God in the passage, verse 13. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. All in vain, he says, my obedience has been all in vain. And as we're reading verse 13, we we must read it in the emotional context that he's writing it in. He's angry at his God. He's saying, God, look at what all I have given you. I've served you. I've, I've written these wonderful psalms. I've served your people. And yet this again is how you treat me? Is this really how you're going to treat your children when you're going to allow the wicked to prosper over them? He just says, I just want to succeed. I mean, I'm tired of suffering and and experience the hardships of life, God. And in a moment of rage, he says, my obedience then must be in vain. It must not matter to you. You must not care for your people. So we must read it in the emotional context in which he's angry at what's taking place. And that's what envy leads. We look out. We see other people prosper. We immediately get angry at them. And we get angry at our God, why God would allow them to be blessed and not us. But there's another temptation that's taking place in the text. The temptation is to look at the wicked and then begin to believe that maybe their methodologies, the way they're going about their life, maybe is the better way to go. We've all been there. It's a scary place to be because we just want to succeed. So maybe we think, maybe, maybe their methodologies of the wicked, maybe they work better in this culture. See, the person who's rude, they get their way. See, the people who are manipulative, they, they, they get what they need in this life. They, so, so maybe that means for us, we just need to cheat more or be more secretive or, or be more bold and selfish. Because it seems to be these are the people who prosper in our culture. So in essence, what we're saying is the same thing King Asaph is saying. Maybe our obedience is in vain. Maybe we need to adapt the ways of the wicked. Maybe we need to do what they're doing. And then we, we, we see it in Psalm 73 as, as Asaph is kind of looking about the world and, and, and he's saying, it, uh, he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And he goes up, if you just read it there in uh, verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault with them. In other words, he's saying that here's these believers, they look at the wicked prospering, and then they begin to conclude maybe there is no fault. Maybe that's the way we should behave. Maybe our obedience is in vain. Have you ever been there? And I was there this week. It sounds silly, but we had this FedEx package that needed to be delivered in two days. It was an important FedEx package. We're going to lose a lot of money if it didn't get delivered in time. 
And it was a lab, kind of a lab thing at home, and you, you kind of send it off, so it had to be there. Well, FedEx, express delivery, two-day guaranteed. So I'm watching the tracking number, and the first day goes by, and it's looking like it's getting to Chicago. It just needs to be delivered the second day. It's supposed to be where it is. It's in the same city. Next day comes. It's supposed to be out for delivery. It's not there. So now I'm checking like every 30 minutes. This package has to be delivered, and guess where the package ends up back at? It ends up back in Charlotte. Two-day express doesn't turn into two-day. It goes third day. Now, now it's back in Charlotte. I'm thinking, what's happening? Now it says it's delayed. It's in Charlotte. I'm getting frustrated. We prayed over this package before it went out, so we're thinking, come on, God. It's important. We prayed. We did everything right. And yet three days goes into four, and it's not being delivered, and you're getting angry. And then you're thinking, maybe the obedience thing doesn't work. Maybe the prayer is not the way to go about this. Maybe I just need to get on the phone and, and speak my mind. Let FedEx have it. Maybe that will kind of speed up this process. Thankfully, I didn't. But your mind goes there. You're thinking, maybe my obedience is in vain. And then the devil begins to whisper things to you. Because if he can get you in that state in which you're thinking your obedience is vain, the next thing he leads you to is envy. He begins to whisper, you're the only one who's suffering in this life. All these things, they only happen to you. So you begin to think, well, maybe I'm the only one in this world who has packages delayed and aren't delivered on time, and yet how foolish that is, right? Just look at the mail system now. Everybody's got packages delayed. It's not only me. But in that moment of frustration, you believe it. So Satan whispers to us, you're the only one going through a hard time. You're the only one having these health problems. You're the only one that, that God hasn't provided financially for. You're the only one who's having it hard in this life, and sadly we begin to believe it. And Satan loves us in that moment, because immediately what it does, it creates envy. If you're the only one and everybody else has it good, you become envious of other people whose packages do make it on time. You become envy of the people who don't have the health problem and then Satan loves you there because what's the next step? It's anger. We get angry. We get angry at the people who don't have the health problems. We get angry at the people who don't have the financial problems. We get angry at the people who have bigger houses than us, who have a greater vacation time, have more toys. We get angry at these people and sometimes we don't even know them. This is where Asaph was. Right? You, you feel his frustration. You feel his confusion. I mean, it seems so backwards. Again, we, we serve the almighty God who's, who's sovereign over all things. Why would this mighty good God allow his people to go through troubling times? What are we to do? Why is he allowing the wicked to prosper? Why is he allowing the wicked to invade another country and have success? Why, why does God allow these things to take place when his people are the one being persecuted throughout the world? And Asaph, in his frustration, he says, I almost gave up my faith. But notice what takes place in verses uh, 16 to 17. It all changes. He finally gets his eyes back on his God. He finally is able to see that, 
The yes, he was, he was slippering, but there God was. In fact, what's so interesting about our passage is the prominent pronouns that make their way throughout this psalm that shows us the progression that Asaph was on. Verses 3 through 9, the major pronoun, the dominant pronoun is they. They the wicked. His eyes were on they. It's they, they, they. They are the ones who are prospering. They are the ones who have it so well. They are the ones who, who don't have any pains in this life. And then we see this shift. 13 to 16, the dominant pronoun is I. He has his eyes on the wicked, they, and then he moves to himself and he says, poor pitiful me. I am poor. I am the one who is suffering. And if you just keep your eyes on them and yourself, envy is going to be the natural outcome every single time. But thankfully it shifts. Then the dominant pronoun for the rest of the passage, verse 17 and on, begins to lead to now I and you, God. Now it's all about Asaph and his God, and his perspective is radically changed. In fact, look at what it says again in verse 16 to 17. It says, but, but when I thought how to understand this problem, it seemed to be a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Notice, notice what he's saying. He said, I had a distorted view of the world, but until I came into the sanctuary of God, when I got my eyes on God, my distorted view changed back into an eternal perspective, a biblical model. And that's so important in our lives. See, so often we walk throughout this life with our eyes focused on this, the here and now, and we need to just tilt our eyes heavenward. We need to dive into to, to a biblical perspective. That's why it's so important to have our, our daily times in which we're reading God's word. It's so important to gather as saints, to readjust ourselves, to, to fix our distorted perspective so that we can leave changed individuals as we have a right, eternal, biblical perspective. That's Asaph. He, he leaves this psalm a different man because he came in contact with his big God. In fact, notice how everything changes. Verse 19 to 20, look at what he says. Truly, you set them in slippery paces. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In essence, what he's saying, he says, when I came into the sanctuary of God, my eyes drifted to see God in his sanctuary. Many scholars believe in this moment what is actually taking place is that he's seen the, the, the fire that is taking place within the sanctuary that never went out, and upon it was the offering. And he's seen this offering taking place. He, he begins to realize, why am I jealous of the wicked when one day very soon God is going to set it all straight? What he's saying in this moment, he's saying, my, my perspective in the here and now is not going to be the eternal reality. My reality now is not the eternal reality, so therefore, why am I envious of the wicked? He says that, that the wicked are like these people on this slippery hill. Yes, prosperous now, but there's coming a time if they do not repent, if they don't turn from their ways and turn to Jesus, that judgment is coming quick. In essence, what he's saying is their prosperity will not last. 
In essence, what he's saying is he says their prosperity is like a dream. Dreams are really good for a while, and then morning comes and you wake up. And what a perfect illustration for the prosperity of the wicked. It says it looks like it's going really good for them right now. But morning's coming. Morning's coming where Christ will return. Morning's coming when Christ will reverse the whole order of the kingdom right now. In which it will be the last who become first. It will be blessed are those who are persecuted for his sake. That, that's when it all shifts. In essence, he's saying, why am I becoming envious of them? When they ha might have it good right now. But in reality, that's all going to disappear if they don't repent. He comes to see a different perspective. Where the righteous through Christ will be saved and those who are wicked will be separated from their God for all of eternity. And when he has that perspective, when he comes into the sanctuary, then he begins to say, it was me, I had the distorted view. Right, he came into this passage thinking God had it all distorted. God was the one who was blessing the wrong people, but yet now he comes to his point in verse 21 to 22 is saying, I was the one who was wrong. Look at what he says in verse 21 to 22. When my soul was embittered, when I pricked in heart, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And it's here when he begins to see things in new light. It's here when he begins to realize the problem with, with envy. If you just let envy sit there and stew and stir, we miss the gifts that God has given us in the present. When, when we have got our eyes on them and not on God, we miss the gifts that he has given us in the present. And what are those gifts to Asaph? It's God's grace, forgiveness, and his presence. And he says, if I have his grace and his forgiveness in his presence, I should not be envious of the wicked, but the wicked should be envious of me. Look at what he writes. This is where the passage gets really good. Verse, verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, you hold my right hand. You, you guide me with counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Read verse 23 again and catch the grace. Nevertheless, nevertheless, what Asaph is really saying is he says here, he's saying, I was British, brutish and ignorant of you, but you nevertheless. Asaph says his soul was embittered toward his God, but, but nevertheless. Asaph says, I, I treated you like a beast, but nevertheless. Nevertheless, that God was right there with Asaph the entire time, holding his right hand. Do you see the grace? 
Asaph is throwing his fist at his God so angry, saying, I want to give you up, but nevertheless, God remained by his side. Asaph is getting angry and shouting at his God, thinking he's so ignorant for doing what he does, but nevertheless, God remained next to Asaph the entire time. Never left his side. Held his right hand. Do you see the grace? This is the grace that we get as well. That while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for us. I was watching this, this, this interview, this testimony this week by a man by the name of Micah Wilder. Micah Wilder was this previous Mormon missionary. Mormon missionary who was so zealous in his religion of, of proclaiming this false Jesus to, his, to, to people. He's on his mission, his two-year mission. He's going around trying to, to win all these different people back to his religion. So zealous in his face that he thinks he can go and, and, and convert this Baptist preacher in his congregation. Funny thing happens in this meeting that he takes on with this Baptist preacher. He hears the gospel for the first time. He realizes it's not how many doors you knock on, how many converts that get you into heaven, but it's by grace and grace alone. In that meeting, he doesn't, he doesn't want to hear anything to do with God, but this pastor tells him as he's way out, he says, I, I challenge you to read the New Testament like a child. And when you read the New Testament as a child, you'll see this Jesus in a different way. You'll see the true Jesus. You see, we're not saved by works, but we're saved by faith. So Micah goes home and he dives in. I think he reads it, I, I forget how many times, but it's, it's over 10 times as he's reading through the New Testament over and over again. And in that moment, he realizes that as much as he was zealous in his faith, as much as he didn't want to turn away from his religion, as much as he wanted away from this Christian Jesus, Jesus was there holding his hand the entire time. Jesus was pursuing him. He comes to faith. And then his, his mom is actually a professor at BYU. His dad's a high priest in the Mormon church. He's three weeks away from going home on this mission. And now he comes to faith. And what is he to do? He can't go back to the Mormon church. He's on his mission. They want to excommunicate him. He comes back to Utah. They want him out. They're calling him the devil, the antichrist. They're calling him all sorts of things. And his mom, being this professor, is looking at his son saying, I don't, I don't see Satan in him. And then she begins to dive late at night, reading the New Testament again, and she comes to faith. A couple years later, the, the husband comes to faith. All these, the, he was dating this girl from BYU, this other Mormon, she comes to faith. Her brothers and his brothers that were part of this thing, they come to faith. And as he's telling his testimony, tears are just streaming down his face because he understands what grace is about. He understand that he was, he was on this pathway to eternity separated from God, but God in his good grace grabbed him and snatched him out. That's our grace. That's our gift. And we get to experience it every single day of our lives. Why am I envious of the wicked when I get this grace? This is what Asaph is coming to see, and then he understands where does grace always lead? It leads us back to our God. And Asaph says, I get God? I get God, the, the creator of all the heavens and the earth? 
He's my God who's walking and talking with me, who's holding my right hand, the the one in which the angels fall down 24 hours a day, seven days a week crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's your God. When you go home today, Yahweh is going to be by your side. When, when you wake up tomorrow morning, Yahweh is going to be by your side. When you go about your day, he is right there holding your hand. You have what the psalm earlier last week said, that the, angel, the Lord of the angel armies is encamped around you. And Asa says, why? How can I be envious when I have the greatest treasure this world has ever seen? See, in our envy, we forget the gifts that God has given us in the present. He has given us himself. He has given us grace. And as we sung earlier, that is more than enough. Sometimes we get skewed in our perspective. Sometimes we lose track of that truth and that reality. But listen to how Asaph concludes. He says, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. In essence, he ain't, he's not going to leave my side. I might experience hardships. I might experience some, some difficulties in my health. But I have God. I have God, for behold, those who are are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. It's good to be near God. It's good to be near God. Do you believe it? See, I look at trials a different way when I understand it's good to be near God because trials push me towards God. The suffering in this life, it pushes me towards God. God disciplines those he loves. In fact, my favorite passage in all of Scripture is Matthew 13, 44. Very simple verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then the best part of the passage, in his joy, he sells everything he has to buy that field. See, I've always wanted to illustrate this text, especially with youth, by inviting a youth up and then I would hand them a candy bar and I'd ask for that candy bar back. And in that moment, it feels like a sacrifice. They had a candy bar, it disappears. But then I say, because you handed me this this candy bar back, I'm going to give you a hundred candy bars, and the next day I'm going to give you a hundred more, and then a hundred more. Then I'll ask that child, was handing me that candy bar a sacrifice at the beginning? Not really. It was the pathway to treasure. In his joy, he sells everything he has. Why? To find the treasure not a sacrifice giving up everything in this life so we can gain it all in the next but what Asaph wants to know it's not even in the next life that we get the treasure we get him here and now do you see it 
Do you see how we don't need to be envious anymore when we have the greatest treasure there is? The greatness about the Psalms is they put language to our frustration, but they don't leave us in our frustration. They tilt our heads heavenward so we can see a big God who is with us the entire time, and we lead changed individuals. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for your reminders. God, who are we that you would be mindful of us? So often I forget of your goodness. So so often I forget that Satan is the one who, who whispers into my ears lies. God, forgive me for believing them so often. God, I pray for our people that we would leave encouraged with the reality that we have Yahweh with us. So yes, our our children at home, it might be hard right now. We might be be looking out at other parents and it looks like they got their children all with their act together. But let us be reminded that it's good to be near you. And with you by our side, we can handle the problem. God, we might be going through a financial problem right now, but let us be reminded that you are near. It is good to be near you. You are the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, so we trust in you. God, remind your people that we have nothing to be envious of because we have it all, our greatest treasure. Protect your church. Bless your church. Empower your church. We pray these things in your mighty name.